0: and brothers, friends, family, neighbors, hermanos, y hermanos, all you citizens of the world. From Chicago, I'm Michael James, and here, here bringing you another edition of the Live from the Heartland Show. We're still in the area, era excuse me, of the pandemic, so this is number 106 since we began doing them via Zoom. We're recording on Friday, June 17th in the year of 2022 for the week of June 18th, 2022. We're at our home base, WLUW.org or 88.7 FM. And uh, today's guests include uh, a very good and old friend of mine, doctor, author, Mark Scott Smith. And then we're going to have Cook County Assessor, Fritz Cahy, an inspirational guy in that role. Okay, so today is actually uh, the day before Juneteenth. Actually, Juneteenth will be on the 19th which is Sunday. And uh, in case people have missed it, uh, Juneteenth officially is Juneteenth National Independence Day. And it's also known as Jubilee Day, Emancipation Day, Freedom Day, and Black Independence Day. Uh, all that information and more is coming from um, Wikipedia, you call it. And um Uh, It's a federal holiday in the United States commemorating the emancipation of enslaved African-Americans. It is also often observed for celebrating parts of, uh, excuse me, African-American culture. It originated in Galveston, Texas. Um, It has been celebrated annually on June 19th in various parts of the United States since 1865. The day was recognized as a federal holiday on June 17, 2021, when President Joe Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act into law. Juneteenth's commemoration is on the anniversary date of the June 19, 1865 announcement of General Order Number no. Three by the Union Army General Gordon Granger, proclaiming freedom for enslaved people in Texas which was the last state of the Confederacy with institutional slavery. It's a real long time since the slaves have been so-called freed, and we are reaping the ramifications of slavery to this day. Uh, Issues uh, that originate with that and uh, are amplified by that are with us all the time. And uh, it's good we're starting to talk on a national level about our own negative legacy of slavery okay on a positive front uh along with juneteenth being celebrated i was really uh had a wonderful time on monday night i went to the music box theater i went with my son hal and his uh, girlfriend carly and we went to see a movie that was made by our own engineer and producer emilio davis's uncle andy davis And it's the first film that I'm in, it's a film about black and white kids in a band together. And I played a very mean old uncle Roy. Uh, It's hard to watch it, but I did what I was supposed to do. I recommend the film real highly and James Porter, who some of you may know from doing the hoodoo party on WLUW, he on his Facebook site, James Porter, wrote a really nice little review on it. Okay um let's get into some, some serious stuff let's start talking about the uh january 16th hearings J- day three was uh thursday and uh what was notable was mike pence was absent from the hearings which concerned the violence conspired against him by the mob for refusing for his refusing to overturn the election results i'd like to say that you know, when I first heard this, I said, oh, Pence, I'll always remember Pence for doing this good thing. But I was watching Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC, and he really made it very clear that Pence, Pence, Pence should have talked up a month earlier. January 6th may not have even happened if he had come out and said, okay, we here's a concession speech, we've lost. Trump didn't do it, he didn't do it, and he didn't do it for a long time until the last minute. So I'm not putting him on any kind of pedestal for having done the right thing. Glad he did it, but uh, it's a much deeper story. And on that front, uh, one of the things that was revealed in the hearings was uh, a representative, Barry Loudermilk from Georgia, uh, who denies this, but he was leading an unofficial tour of the Capitol uh, of men who would later participate in the attacks. This was the day before the attack. And while Loudermilk denies it, there's video of him and these guys taking photographs of stairwells, stairways, not your usual tourist kind of thing. Moving right along, uh, let's talk a little bit about voting. Uh, If you're living in Illinois, you gotta know that January, excuse me, June 28th is uh, election day. You can vote ahead of time by mail, in person, at Potawatomi, no, uh, Willie White Park and a number of other places. The information is readily available if you want it and I recommend that you do. Turning out the vote, not only in our own elections here in Chicago, but throughout the country is really crucial. And let's go back to the defeat um, last week of the district attorney in San Francisco. Chase Boudin was elected to office by a very slim margin He received less votes than he did when he was elected than he did in the recall. And uh, what an article I read by a guy named Michael Hiltz, H-I-L-T-Z-I-K, he's a business columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and he uh, he really attacks or comes back on the critics of progressive criminal justice reform, a lot of people, a lot of pundits are talking about, oh, well, Boudin lost, and who knows who's going to be next, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia or Kim Fox in Chicago. There are a lot of other uh, district attorneys, particularly he's talking about in California, where the progressives did fine. In Alameda County, across the bay from San Francisco, Yacinian Sanchez is poised to win her race for sheriff without facing a runoff, despite espousing progressive reforms not dissimilar from Bodine's. Diana Beckton, another progressive, appears to have won a second term as Contra Costa DA, while civil rights attorney Pamela Price will head off to head to a runoff in Alameda County, Uh, with a sizable lead. So you got to be careful if you're watching the mainstream news because they'll start to swing you over to their analysis, their interpretation in the way. It's clear that we're up against it a little bit with the election. A lot of people don't seem too interested. Uh, It's an off year in the sense that it's not a presidential election, but it will make a big difference in what goes on in the next couple of years in all of our lives. So in Illinois, get ready to vote by June 28th. Okay, on the environmental front, um, reporting I saw yesterday, and we've heard about it all week long, was they were looking for two people, Don Phillips and Bruno Carrera. Uh, they were both, uh, one of them is a indigenous person, that would be Carrera, the other is a reporter uh, who was working on a film. And they were in the Amazon where uh, there has been more and more extraction of natural resources. Um, What goes on in the rainforest is really crucial. Uh, While Bolsonaro, the head of uh, the president of Brazil, likes to blame these guys and others like them for various things, Uh, Brazil's rainforest is really uh, a possession of the world. And like a lot of other places, it has to be dealt with in a worldwide way. Uh, What's key here is that both Phillips and Carrera were killed. There's the extractors, the miners, the loggers, the fishermen. Um, They put a lot of pressure on locals to uh, do whatever they want. And the government didn't really move very quickly on it. And another thing to know is that there are 100 unconnected tribes in the Amazon. Some of them, you know, are really uh, not too advanced in terms of their culture, at least the way we look at it in the West. So know that. Also, uh, on the COVID front, uh, the beloved, uh, the wonderful Dr. Fauci got COVID. So everyone, and he's masked up, and he has got his shot. So everyone out there, be careful how you interact with your friends, your neighbors, people you don't know, wherever you may go. I do suggest you wear a mask whenever you can. On gun legislation, we've been hearing all week, or ever since uh, the most recent shootings, about uh, the Senate uh, Democrats and Republicans coming together so that they could get 60 votes to do something around guns, to do some kind of legislation, and Texas Senator Cornyn, who has been right in the forefront of it, all of a sudden pulled back. This was on Thursday. He pulled back because they the red flag laws that would uh, target uh, people who you know, maybe are mentally unstable or uh, are You know, beat up on their partner, whatever could be red flagged and perhaps their guns taken away. So the Senate now the Republican side is balking we will keep you posted. And just in case you think that uh, we're going to get a little respite from mass shootings.
1: How much a dollar really costs? The question is detrimental. paralyzing my thoughts, parasites in my stomach keep me with gut feeling. Y'all gotta see how I'm chilling once I park this luxury car. Hopping out feeling the biggest tempo. Twenty year pump six, Dirty Marcellus called me Dumbo. Twenty years ago, came for forget. Now I can lend him my ear too. How to stack these residuals tenfold? The liberal concept that men do Twenty 2006, six, didn't hear me. And did this African only spoke so
0: many- Ah, thanks for the music, Emilio. Uh, and uh, it gives me great pleasure now to bring on our next guest. He's a guy who I worked on old cars with in the downstairs hot rod club. We played football together in junior high at Bedford Junior High in Westport, Connecticut. We played on the Wreckers team at high school. Uh, We did various activities that were probably not positive things to do that we won't share uh, in our rebellious 50s youth. Uh, I first heard Howlin' Wolf when I was over at his house. And uh, I always remember uh, amateur radio uh, or ham radio. And this guy had W1ZTZ. That would be W1, Zanzibar, Tokyo in Zanzibar. The one, the only, the author, Mark Scott Smith. Good morning to you, brother. Hi, Mike. How are you doing?
1: Good. Did I leave anything out? <laughs> That's a pretty good summary, I'd say. I just say that Mike was known as Burley uh, from the, the newspaper on, the high, on our high school football team. I can't remember what I was. Uh, I don't know, but I always called you Smitty. And the guy who named me Burley
0: was uh, he's one of the few Republicans I think we have in our, <laughs> uh, our group. Um, and yeah, uh, I recovered a fumble. And in the story in the center, the school paper, he said, and Burley Mike James recovered a fumble. There you go. I've been called that by him and a few others from Staples High School ever since. Okay, the reason we've got you on here is because you uh, have become a prolific author. You have uh, written three novels or historical novels. um, And uh, I read one of them uh way back and you were on the show if the people look up your name Mike Mark Scott Smith on our YouTube you'll find it it has to be labeled better but that was called M- enemy in the mirror love and fury in the pacific war then he followed it up a few years later with the osprey and the sea wolf the battle of the atlantic 1942 got that one here i'm in the middle of that one and then He moved right along and he talks about a book. He has a book called Night Fire, Morning Snow. And uh, it's the road to Chosin. And that one, I think, takes place uh, during the Korean War. So how about
1: filling this in about these books? What are they about and what got you going? Yeah, well, as you know, I was in academic medicine at the University of Washington. And when I retired um, and moved to the Oregon coast, I learned about a Japanese submarine that surfaced in the spring of 1942 um, and lobbed some shells into Fort Stevens. A, so, you know, an old fort on the Columbia River. Nobody was really hurt. A basketball court was damaged a little bit and so on, but it was a pretty dramatic event. And I, I was amazed, I didn't know that. Uh, and so I started, re- I started researching and, you know, I was never really a war buff before that. Um, but I really got into the history of World War II, and, uh, and to make a long story short, it turns out that the Japanese also sent a balloon bomb over that caught in a tree, and a minister's wife and kids on a picnic pulled on it, killed them all. And so these were the the uh, events that I took from Oregon, um, and I wanted to see what was going on on the other side. And we live in the northwest coast uh, of Oregon, which is very uh, you know uh, rough and. T- trees and mountains and so on. And that's Hokkaido in, German, in uh, Japan. So the northernmost island of, of Japan. So I decided I wanted my character to come from Hokkaido. So anyway, we went there and researched it. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I had to look up a lot of technical and military stuff, you know, to kind of get it, get it right. And I wrote that book about the, those guys, not knowing that I was gonna write more books and that maybe I wanted my characters to carry over. So that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm trying to put it together in a way of retrospect to make these characters carry through from my first book to hopefully, if I live long enough, Mike, uh, Vietnam. That's the one I want to write next, which would you know, take me quite a while, about four years to do
0: these. Yeah, well, I hope we both live long enough. You know, as you know, I got some books in the works and uh, yeah. you're an inspiration. <laughs> I, uh I was wondering actually where your interest in uh, the sec- in, in war came from, uh, you know, and activity beyond our borders. I wondered if it was through the ham radio. Uh, you and I both had a great history teacher in Gordon Hall. Uh, mm-hmm. If it was when you were exchange student, you went, I think you went to Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't even know if you remember, there was a guy named Buzz Bailey, I think he worked at the local Sport Mart, it wasn't the chain in our mm-hmm. hometown. And he had come back from the Second World War, Korea, or something. And I remember hanging out and hearing war stories from him. Where yeah. did you get this uh, interest in uh,
1: in war, Second World War and beyond? I think I think it's probably more political. You know, I mean, I, as you say, I did did spend a lot of time in uh, uh, other countries. I had my junior year in the summer, you know, I did that AFS thing in Germany, and then I spent my junior year in college in Munich, and I lived in a German student dorm. Uh, And so really got to know Germans and international people there. And then my wife and I also have done a lot of uh, work in Latin America, uh, medical uh, work in Latin America, specifically in Chiapas. Uh, We went there every year for like 10 years or a month and worked in a hospital with Mayan Indians. So I became very interested in just kind of the international aspect of it. And um, I, t- I think what I'm really getting more interested in today is how America screwed up so many times in, in these wars that we got involved in. You know, I think World War II we didn't have a lot of choice, but you know, Korean War and Vietnam were both about the domino theory and about communism taking over Southeast Asia and so on. And if you followed the the development since the Soviet Union collapsed and all those documents were opened up. That they what they were doing. You know, they had other things to worry about. So it was kind of our bogeyman that we uh, really believed that this, everything was going to fall. And I'm studying, I'm starting to study Vietnam now. And damn it, Mike, it's just like Korea. I mean, we did the same things. There was a government in there that was anti-communist. So we supported them, but they were anything but democratic. And, and, and I, I just think, you know, anyway, I'm trying to figure out how my character, who's going to carry over, is going to assess all this. You know, he's a career military guy. This is this now, does this character originate in one of the earlier books? Yeah, this is Nick from the first book. In the, which book? The first book? Yeah, you read that a long time ago, but I, read, I don't remember. Nick, Nick I remember. is the young man who grows up in Oregon and ends up in the Pacific War. And actually, it was really modeled after my uh, late uh, um, father in law who was in the New Guinea campaign. Um, And so I did a lot of research on where he was and what he did and so on. I ended up, the character's model on that. Well, in your second book, uh, the one I'm reading now, The Osprey
0: and the Sea Wolf, The Battle of of the Atlantic, there's a Mexican-American B-52 pilot out of Texas. And I'm wondering if there actually were any Mexican-American pilots at that time?
1: Yes. Uh Yeah, I want to reassure you, anything I write in these books has been heavily researched. I mean, I've, I've, for example, that very question there, I probably asked the uh, U.S. Air Force military historian in D.C. I had a cool connection with that guy. And I say, look at this. I'm, you know, I don't understand this. And he said, well, it could have been so and so. So, I mean, yeah, there were. Now, were there a lot? No. Uh, But there were definitely uh, pilots. And that Ramon is my other main character uh nick doesn't even appear in that book in the second book you're reading now but in this third book you will see uh they both appear in the korean war book and now i have yet to figure out what i'm going to do in vietnam because those guys would be late 40s in vietnam so they'd be like senior officers something if they stayed in the military you know i I just want to let people know it's not all about war this uh mexican-american
0: pilot has a little thing down a little uh little encounter with uh his commanding officer's wife and i was really impressed with the, the sensuousness of your writing mark i thought you did <laughs> a great job <laughs> so let's get a little more travelogue on how on these other books when you research them because one of the things uh I'd like to know what the definition of historical uh fiction is yeah. um
1: where was i going with that anyhow
0: you do okay. something on that
1: yeah, no, I think it's a good question. I, you know, I, I, where I'm at is, um, and then remember, I come from an academic medicine background, so I'm really used to like, is that really true? You know, and researching things and looking up the facts and studies and all that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to apply that to this, also to the military stuff by asking the experts, like the military museum guy, historian or whatever. Or in Korea, I've got a guy who's a head of medical history at the Seoul University. And in Vladivostok, Russia, I've got a neurosurgeon Who is uh, my man to tell to hook me up with a bunch of academics there? You know, so when we made our trips, uh, the last one we made was two years ago. Uh, This, you know, COVID's kind of screwed things up, but we were there in uh, in uh, Japan, Korea, and then Vladivostok. Um, And I learned stuff, Mike, that I wouldn't have. I would have got wrong. I would have been embarrassed if I had written it. I had this one plan in mind. I was going to have this Korean. a uh, guerrilla fighter who was in Manchuria fighting the Japanese, escaping into Russia, which they did in 1942. Uh, but then I was going to have him kind of settling down in Vladivostok and meeting a nice Russian girl and so on. And uh, my friend introduced me to a to an older guy who was a historian. He said, "Impossible." <laughs> <I> said, what? <laughs> and What I didn't know was I didn't research far enough back because in the late 30s Stalin was paranoid about Koreans. In, uh, in Russia, in that part of Russia, and he expelled them all. I think it was uh, Uzbekistan. So they weren't really there, although the military was. The guerrillas, because the guerrillas were seasoned, you know, Korean and Chinese communist guerrillas fighting the Japanese. And so the Russians incorporated them into a unit, but they isolated them in a small town away from Vladivostok. And I was going to write it all about Vladivostok. Anyway, changed the whole, you but know, a lot of accurate stuff in your writing. I like it. Yeah. Definitely, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, you also didn't you go to for the, the second book? Didn't you go down to
1: Merida? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Because uh, my character there, he's flying out of uh, he's flying out of Florida, but then he gets uh, sent to uh, Mexico to train Mexican pilots, which we did, um, and then he ends up in Cuba uh, and flying out of Cuba at the end. Yeah, S- hunting submarines. We don't mention my other guy who is really from Germany. And, and he's a career Navy guy, he's not a Nazi, but he's been in the Navy, you know, long before the Nazis were in power and he's going to fight for his country and he's killing our guy, he's sinking ships. Well, one of the things you do in your writing so far, what I've read, is that you uh, have
0: characters and protagonists from the opposite sides. Talk yes. a little bit about that and how the, what that does for you and why you
1: came to choose that method. I think that's my whole raison d'être now. The, you know, even my website I call it "Enemy in the Mirror: Understanding America and Her Enemies in wartime, yeah. basically in my lifetime since World War II. You know, um, yeah, I just think it's super important to understand. I mean, I, I have a ba- you can call me naive, but I have a basic belief in humanity that all around the world we're not all that you know you love your wife and your family and you're living in your country and maybe it's not best government but sure as hell gonna fight for it if it's in a war i mean i think that's what happens and of course if we're gonna fight against them we gotta demonize them so that we can kill them you know we don't want them see them as a good guy or anything so i'm trying to walk the delicate line you know about uh what are what are their awarenesses and i and i think uh, in the one you're reading that you're reading that one now about the u-boats and stuff right yeah so, yeah, I think in that one you'll see that I really try to touch on his awareness when he goes home and what's happening to like his wife saying, you know, they teach him a lot of stuff in school. It's a little bit on the edge and so things like that, you know. It's yeah, not you know, of, good at I, that. You know, I, I try to imagine what would I feel like if I was there, you know, with this guy, you know. So, yeah, yeah you know,
0: it's a, you know, and one of the things that you uh, uh, at the end of your on your Facebook site you talk about uh, you, some questions you have. Uh, about the world at war, and you talk about how might we better understand the lessons of war so yeah. as not to repeat them? Well, Absolutely. we're in wars <laughs> everywhere now. Do you got any good ideas on that? <laughs> that we don't repeat
1: those mistakes. I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I'm getting a little <laughs> bit bummed out right now about re- researching Vietnam, but literally, I mean, uh, I shouldn't say literally, almost literally, we did the exact same errors of understanding what was there, when we got there, we didn't understand the culture, we didn't understand the, the uh, politics that was happening and we just supported whoever was anti-communist, which unfortunately ended up being repressive governments with secret police and so on, and we were backing them. You know,
0: I, uh, I did go to the Facebook site and I did go to your YouTube site, uh, no, not YouTube, your website. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, I found really interesting is you had just posted information on those sites And two of them that I I saw, June 58, Cuban rebel forces captured 29 sailors and Marines as they returned to Guantanamo from leaving Cuba. The hostages were detained in the hills for 22 days, then released. Yeah. Okay, so that was good. Then I'm reading about this guy, Imran Nagy, who was the chairman of the Council of Ministers of the Hungarian People's Republic from 1953 to 55. In 56, He's a committed communist. He became the leader of the Hungarian Revolution, and I remember that coming down against the Soviet-backed government. He was sentenced to death, executed in 1958.
1: Yeah. So yeah. those are some really uh, I had never heard any of those
0: to before. Yeah. Well, you
1: know, my website is kind of it turned out to be a timeline. I mean, the reason I started in the first place was I was trying to research this stuff for myself uh, when I was writing about it, and then I decided, "Hell, I had to do something with this." Like so this, I've been. I got like 1,500 posts on there now. I started off like three times a week. Well, you know, that's too much. And so I do it twice a week now, pretty regularly. But you know, you might tune in next week and you'll find an ad for uh, a dishwasher salt or something, just kind of fun things that, oh, really, I remember that, you know, on the TV, I used to hear it. And then the next one would be about Nagy being executed or the Cubans or whatever. So I'm trying to just bring out the consciousness of what we were experiencing. It's hard to do the other side on my website, Um, particularly when we get into Russia and Hungary and so on, because I can't find English stuff um, that I can post, you know. Uh, Have you thought at
0: all about having your books translated into Japanese and Korean?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have. You know, um, I mean, I would love to, I would love particularly to have it in Korean, because I think it really would hit home with those guys. Um, Yeah, I don't know what it costs. I don't, you know, I mean, this is Amazon, man. I'm a self-published guy, you know. I haven't made a fortune off any of these books, and do I want to spend a fortune to turn it into another language? I don't know. Uh, But yeah, I would love to have it in Korean, for example. I think that'd be perfect. Uh,
0: I guess um, I'm wondering if uh, you ever thought about seeing if you can get a publisher beyond doing it yourself. I mean, you know, you've got a lot of people reading your books. I
1: follow that. Absolutely. uh, Yeah. You know, I really spent a lot of time with the first book trying to do, trying to get the agent and get a publisher and so on. I spent lots of time. I went to workshops. I pitch the pitch the book to agents and all that kind of stuff and it went nowhere uh, and and i learned that it's extremely difficult you know let's get you know right now hey i'm 80 you know so you and i are 80 uh how yeah, many more books am i like. going to write and a publisher they want somebody who's going to be around for a while so yeah. they're not going to put a lot of bucks into it so i think for me now i finally realized you know i i really can't uh, keep pushing to try to get a major publisher. Well, that's good because
0: you know you Put it on Amazon, you move it out there, you do use yeah. uh, the social media. That's um, what I need
1: to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You, they're good. These are good reads. So I'm going to let's tell people the names of them again. Uh, we've yeah. got Enemy in the Mirror, we've mm-hmm. got The Osprey and the Seawolf, and we've mm-hmm. got Nightfire Morning Snow. And you can find uh, on Facebook, it's under Mark Scott Smith, and you can find enemyinthemirror.com if you just punch it in and you will get a lot of information. These are not the first books you've written, though, Mark. You no. a book, uh, I think, a textbook called Chronic Disorders yeah. in Adolescence. Uh, yeah. You have 11 book chapters from 73 to 2010. You have 41 medical articles. Uh, yeah. Give us a little history of your, your career as a doctor and your current concern about COVID. Because oh, um, yeah. I know that I see your stuff that goes out to fellow classmates and you're always talking about COVID. And I want to say to the two or three who are really kind of backward, that you ought to pay attention to. You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, I was fortunate in, uh, you know, I think uh, in my where I got trained and I ended up staying in, in Seattle at the University of Washington Children's Hospital, um, which is really a world-class place. And I, I, I love that where I really did. I love the job. Um, and I ended up being the uh, director of the Adolescent Medicine Program at Children's Hospital. And we actually had a ward and clinic and all that kind of stuff. Um, in, in I say we did, because what happened is uh, an adolescent ward is a hard thing to maintain uh, with a lot of pressure from uh, every subspecialty wanting all their kids in one area. So anyway, it doesn't exist anymore. It's all blended. in. But in my day, we had an adolescent ward and, uh, and a clinic. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and um, the COVID stuff. Um, I Also, I should say I was always really interested in infectious disease. And in fact, I thought it was the second. If I had done it all over again, I might have pursued the infectious disease uh, route. I fell into adolescent medicine. You know, I was in the army. Um, you know, uh, you know when uh, I don't know if you know, but during I didn't the know Vietnam War, you were War, in the army. You were in the army. Yeah, if, during the Vietnam War, if you were a, a medical student um you were automatically drafted you don't worry you did not have a number or anything you were just drafted at the end of your internship um and uh, i got deferred to finish my residency pediatrics so when they took me in uh they're gonna send me to vietnam they sent me to germany because that's where all our dependents were you know we had you know huge amount of american dependents in, in europe it ended up being i always say I didn't like wearing a uniform. I didn't like uh, saluting. But other than that, man, it was a pretty good experience. I traveled all over Europe. I saw really interesting referral cases from all over the place and had good work with good people. You know, so that was my that was my military experience. I don't people I say, you know, doctors tip their pipe and real soldiers, you know, salute kind of stuff. So, I, you know, <laughs> I don't I can't claim to really be a military guy, but I kind of familiar with the culture. So it helps with the writing, you know.
0: Well, I didn't realize that you were in the Army. I know I uh, went before our, our, probably we had the same draft board up in Bridgeport. Yeah. And I remember talking to them about being a conscientious objector. And yeah. uh, they didn't give that to me. But i what I did say to them, if you take me, I'll organize against you from the inside. Yeah. And when I went for my physical in Chicago, miraculously, they gave me a one why. Which doesn't uh, exclude sorry. you, but it, it postpones yeah. it in case they really you need that, you. No, so like, I basically was in the streets. I didn't realize that about you anyhow. What well, else? I, I, to say,
1: Mike, I, I, I often realize that how close I was to going to Vietnam. I mean, if I hadn't gotten into medical school, I graduated from college not knowing what I wanted to do. and And so I took another year of taking pre-med courses and working in a hospital and stuff. And I could have got drafted any moment. And I did get drafted at the end of that year. But I got into medical school at the last moment, the end of August and changed my whole life. Otherwise it would have been Vietnam. Well, you're a wonderful guy. You're living out
0: there on the West Coast. You're writing away. Uh, I know you're taking walks with your dog. Uh, I remember you wrote a thing one time about some guy who came and punched you. Uh, yeah. you write some poems. You're, you're doing great, Mark. And it's so wonderful <laughs> to see you. And probably the next time we either uh, uh, like a class Zoom or I might show up on the West Coast, or you're always welcome here. There you go. Thanks, Mike. It's really been great to talk. One to more you. time it's Enemy in Mirror, EnemyInMirror.com. Mark Scott Smith, one hell of an author. See you later, brother.
1: <laughs> See you, man. You
0: are listening to the Live from the Heartland show, or you might be watching it on YouTube, or you might be getting it on the air or via Zooms, or uh, YouTube. There's all kinds of ways these days. So we'll be right back with more and our next guest. So stay tuned here on the left end of your dime. Watch
1: my life passing right in front of my eyes. of the story. Oh, is it boring? Can't claim the care. Never been a to share. Thousands of pieces of me. Don't you know nothing comes free?
0: We're back with a little bit more of Live from the Heartland for the week of June 18th. And uh, our next guest is someone who uh, was elected here in Cook County. Uh, He inherited problems from the past. He's been called a visionary, a reformer. He's, uh, you know, he is the Cook County Assessor, the one, the only Fritz Cahey. Good morning to you, Mr. Cahey Fritz.
2: Hey, well, Michael, thank you. And good to be back on the show. Good to have all the listeners, uh, the great listeners from Live from the Heartland there. We love your your audience and what you guys have been about for so long.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. And, um, you know, uh, first of all, I think we ought to distinguish between what the Cook County Assessor does and the Cook County Board of Appeals. They're uh-huh. two separate bodies. To yeah. My understanding. Give us a, the down low on what's what's the (laughs) actually i'm going to broaden the
2: horizon even more to sort of give you a quick nutshell on how the property tax system works so um basically the, the our schools and our villages and all the people who provide services in uh in the communities we live in they levy they they do something called a levy they decide how much money they need every year And it's like a bill that has to be divvied up at the end of the year. It's about $16 billion in total in Cook County. And that does not change no matter how we at the assessor's office do assessments. So there's this bill, it's like a a bill that's presented at the end of dinner uh, that's determined by our taxing bodies. And then that's how assessments start to come into the picture. Why do we do assessments? Not because they're fun, but so we can divvy up that bill amongst every single property owner in a community based on your share of the total assessed value in your community. So it's like, you know, the person who orders the 40 ounce porterhouse steak um, ought to be paying more of the bill than the person who ordered the side salad. And that's why we do assessments. And that's why it's important that we calculate the value of everyone's property fairly accurately so that some people aren't subsidizing others. We don't want the guy who ordered the 40 ounce porterhouse steak to be passing on his share of the bill to the folks who have a smaller share, who also have a smaller share of the bill. So that's, what, that's why we have an assessor's office. That's why we have assessments. Now, we're not the last final word on that. Um, once we're done with our estimates of value, people can appeal at our office and then we certify those numbers and then it's handed off to another Cook County body called the Cook County Board of Review or the Board of Appeals it used to be known as. And they have another round of appeals that they do. So really the final property tax base that's, that's, um, that we have where we're divvying up that bill is determined both by us and by that board of review. And so it's very important that assessments be done fairly at our office, but also that appeals not confer favors on some that come at the expense of others, which is, happens at the board review. So it's important that we look at both of these.
0: Do you think it's necessary that we have the board of appeals? I mean, it can work in the favor of some people or against them.
2: Well, so if you look at other systems across America that function well, there always is you know, a second look at um, assessment. So you have the assessor's office and then you have appeals boards across America. Now, our appeals board here is very unique in that it's elected. It's the only elected appeals board that I know of in America um, and there, you know, is usually some accountability for where your assessments land um, in terms of implications for the other people who are not in the room, the rest of the taxpayers. And I think we need to push, you know, our system in that direction too, because you know, basically, if you look at the board review, the reductions that they've made, they overwhelmingly go to commercial property owners at the expense of homeowners. So. Uh, last year, they made two point two billion dollars in reductions for commercial, about two hundred million for residential. So eleven to one, tilting things in favor of those big winners who made commercial appeals, diverting burdens onto everyone else who's not in the room: um, small businesses and homeowners.
0: So you came in as a progressive with the backing of uh, people like David Orr and a lot of other, including myself, um, and. Uh, In a lot of ways, you've done a really lot of great work. Uh, They do have a a thing they're calling it the CAHI effect. I'm not sure what that means. You could tell us. But it seems to me that the uh, Cook County Assessor's Office used to be controlled by regular Democrats who, uh, like Madigan, et cetera, who basically were close to downtown real estate interests, large property owners, et cetera. Uh, you come in and you you peel that back. You start to make some real changes. Ah, all of a sudden we have a board of review and that's where the regulars seem to have moved over to. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even put the label Democrat on uh, <laughs> what's being done because it's not democratic. Like the, to me, the ultimate democratic value is the rich should pay their fair share so that the average person who's not as powerful as wealthy doesn't pick up the tab for the wealthiest. Like To me, that's the ultimate democratic value. You can't get a more democratic value than that. But there were insiders, including elected officials who traffic as property tax appeals lawyers, who basically ran the assessor's office before I came in here. And if you look at the practical effect of what happened is study after study after study showed that the biggest buildings were massively undervalued, Put, handing their bills to small businesses and homeowners in, in as a result. So uh, one study showed that in Cook County as a whole, commercial properties were 40% under assessed. And the city of Chicago is 50% under before we came in. And that meant that the average homeowner in Chicago is probably paying $1,000 per year more than they should have been, not only draining cash from them in neighborhoods year after year, but also negatively impacting people's wealth. Um, and this particularly affects black and brown communities. Black people have, brown people have more of their wealth in their house than other racial groups do. Um, so this is really important. Uh, it's a basic question of equity. So what we did, the Kegi effect, which Cranes calls it, and I get called lots of names in this office, but this is one moniker that I'll accept gladly, um, is to make sure that even the biggest buildings were valued fairly in line with the market, just like everyone else. Um, what that did is that made sure that those bigger buildings were properly, you know, absorbing the burden that they should have been absorbing all along, and homeowners and small businesses benefited from having a lower share of the burden. What did that translate into? Last year, homeowners in the city of Chicago had a, that, that median homeowner had a smaller tax bill for the first time in a decade. Same thing happened. <laughs> okay there we go same thing in the north suburbs um and in many south suburbs that happened to places like markham and harvey and Dixmoor, they had the median residential bill going down several hundred dollars in some case in in, in the case of harvey and and markham down more than 500 dollars a year so substantial um uh but you know the 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 issue is that Um, more of the gains need to be kept by homeowners. What we saw is that in our, so let me just give people two more data points just to close this out. The last two years, homeowners property tax bills went up only 1% each of the last two years in um, Cook County, across the whole county, which is really, it broke the trend of growth that had been happening before. They've been growing much faster before where growth was in residential At the and commercial was not growing as fast. So we flipped that trend. That's like, that's the Kagi effect. And the biggest reward is yet to come this year for Chicagoans because they've been waiting for the effects of our reassessment in Chicago. We only got to reassess Chicago last year in 2021. It'll be felt in this people's tax bill in the back half of 22. Homeowners share the burdens down nine percentage points. And what does that mean? In the city of Chicago, they collect something like seven and a half billion dollars in levies. So nine percentage points of that, that's over $600 million a year that homeowners are in line are on track to be keeping for themselves in the neighborhoods that they used to be picking up the tab for big buildings. So that is, that's is—that's a huge amount of money. That's several hundred dollars per homeowner, at least. Um, that's what we're on track for. And that's the Keggy effect um, you know, in, in its most dramatic um uh no now let me say in response but the but michael the story is not done there because uh 9 percentage points you know it's it's not done because the board review still gets to have their say and if they cut the reassessments on big buildings downtown you know the reason why People share the burden is down nine percentage points. Is those bigger buildings are absorbing more? If the board review goes and reduces their values, that's putting more burden back on a homeowner. So for each one percentage point of the burden that they give back, that's like about seventy million dollars that uh, goes back onto the bills of homeowners in the neighborhood. So that's what's at stake in the second half of this year, um, and everyone will be watching the board review carefully.
0: So uh, you lower the homeowners tax nine percent. Uh, here come the big guys. They want to stick us with their tax bills. A lot yeah, of entitlement. Uh, they want their buildings to be undervalued. Uh, they have got a lot of tax lawyers on the move. Uh, you know, so what actually happened? We had a situation. Give us talk about Trump Towers. Yeah, well, so I'll get, I'll get to that. You know, Michael,
2: it's so gross. It is really gross that, you know, the law couldn't be clearer. We're supposed to assess these buildings based on market value. But these building owners, they think they're entitled to having fake low values, like, such as the ones that w- we saw in the past, and and they they have they feel a real indignity if when they're treated just like everyone else. You know, homeowners, small businesses, they've pretty much always been assessed in line with the market. But these big building owners, they're so entitled to it that they feel they're entitled to fake values, and they're willing to to look the other way at. And all the other bad things that happened that corrupted our system—that—that that, you know—you had tax lawyers running the office, you had favoritism, you had stuff going on behind the scenes that is being investigated by <laughs> by uh, uh, legal authorities now by our U.S. attorney in several different avenues. It's been reported, um, and but people, some people, you know, they they actually want that. They think that's better, and I think that's just such a gross, dark vision that we. We, you know, we as the public, you know, we voted against this so strongly in 2018 to push this in a reform direction. And I think people will do it this year. And, you know, I think it's it's clear enough that the public cares about this, that the party itself has endorsed our vision now. Um, you know, four years ago, we had to fight uphill against the party. Now the party sees that actually this is a better way to do it. And, you know, we won slating, Because enough people said, you know, this is a better way. This is better for public. This is more consistent with Democratic values. And Trump Tower is a perfect example. Um, You know, under the old assessor, they actually gave rewards for keeping buildings vacant. They would cut your assessment by up to 90% if you kept a building vacant. It was like paying people for keeping things vacant. And it was outrageous because Trump Tower, they had this retail space right downtown right on uh, uh, the riverwalk that they kept vacant. and as a result they could they would go to the assessor's office and the board review, ask for a big reduction for vacancy and the assessor's Office of policy for vacancy was so lavish, you know creating damage across the city that they took advantage of it too. We changed that policy. We heard from everyone in the neighborhoods and the suburbs and the regional chambers of commerce from small business that it's outrageous that you reward vacancy and you penalize the people who are staying open in good faith and like adding vitality employment to our communities like um, you know like in Rogers Park so what we did is we changed the policy we greatly reduced the benefits uh, the reductions you could get from vacancy and that led to Trump Tower paying a much higher tax bill so Trump Tower now pays a 40 percent higher tax bill than they did under Barrios, And we're, we're proud of that. And then we reassessed Trump Tower this year and their assessments going up um, even more in line with a lot of the other big buildings downtown. So that's, that's an example of how we made sure that the biggest buildings are not getting lavish favoritism from this office and and not, you know, shifting their bills
0: onto others. Well, on the Trump Towers, you were up their bill 40%. What happened with the, uh, Board of Review, did they try to lower that or is still in that, in
2: that case, they did not. But we have seen other cases where the Board Review is still like, uh, you know, engaging in some of this uh, activity where they give lavish rewards for vacancy. If you look up at Evanston um, at the Orrington Hotel, you know, this is a hotel that was purchased for 60 for $60 million. Um, or Sorry, for $50 million. They told their lenders, they thought it was worth 60. Um, and uh, that was before the pandemic, even after the pandemic. Yes, okay, you have more vacancy, but the board review cut the value all the way to $4 million, um, which is just a travesty uh, because hotels, that's not the way hotel markets work. Even if you keep a hotel vacant the market pays a certain amount of dollars per room if you want to buy a hotel and that transferred you know tax burden on everyone else in Evanston completely unnecessarily at the benefit of a giant of giant investors
0: well it's you know let me ask is it seems like now that the democratic party has endorsed you for the assessor position what's going on with their position on the board of review because you and who tell us about who's running in that and what uh what's your your take is on it
2: well, well basically people have asked me about this you know i talk about the institution of the board review as you know the behavior being troubling uh, you know transferring burden back on the homeowners and our philosophy has been to show people the data on this to show what the impact of it is and why it's of concern um, but I do not get involved I don't you know I didn't think it was proper for me to get involved in races this cycle because um, I think it's important for the assessor not to get involved in board of review races this cycle you know it, it, it's uh, um, I think people ought to um, there's a conflict there and um, uh, so I, I I'm not endorsing and I, I made clear that my position is I'm not endorsing candidates for board review because, um, I just think it's important that I want to be able to talk about the institution and the data without, you know, seeing it, me, you know, improperly getting involved with. Specific- no, that,
0: that's good. And that's the way it should be. But there are two steels running in this race. OK, yes. two races. One okay. of them is opposing you. And that would be Kerry Steele. Right. He's probably got ties to. Uh, what we would call the old regular Democrat types.
2: Oh yeah, so, big time. <laughs>
0: and then you have a uh, Samantha Steele running for the Board of Review, uh-huh. and uh, progressives would tend to like her. Now, mm-hmm. uh, uh, let's just leave that. Uh, we got the assessors race. We yeah. got the Board of Review race. Uh, what about? Let me ask you a couple more quick uh, questions. Um, what about tips? What? A, you know, it's kind of a backyard tax. Uh, the money from a district gets uh, tiffed and it doesn't get used for schools. For... Okay.
2: And Michael, before we go into, into tips, I, I think we should just note the contrast in the assessor's race because good, good. It is, it's just extremely important for people to know. So, you know, all this work, you know, we, you mentioned the KG effect, making sure that uh, we're valuing the big buildings in line with the market, just like everyone else always has been. And as a result, Those bigger buildings are absorbing more share of the burden to the benefit of homeowners and small businesses. You know, I think it's only logical to expect that, especially since those big buildings are so entitled, they think they're entitled to hiding data. They think they're entitled to fake valuations. They wanna make this office broken again. And they've recruited a candidate. My opponent, Carrie Steele, the commissioner for the Water Reclamation District, who has just immense conflicts and and troubling problems um, that people need to know about. I mean, uh, first of all, her husband's a real estate lobbyist. um, So money coming directly into the family bank account from the same people that the assessor would be assessing. Um, And second of all, uh, getting pretty much all the financial backing from the people who want this office broken again, who want favoritism back. Uh, who want to shift and hand their tax bills to others um, in the way that the public so roundly and soundly uh, rejected before. Also, it's come to light in the last couple of days that Commissioner Steele doesn't even know, uh, not only doesn't know how exemptions work, she, she couldn't describe the, how the senior freeze worked uh, the other day, but also um, is has illegal property tax exemptions herself and still is not ign- acknowledging it and denies that it's a problem. There was a uh, um, really amazing coverage by Crane Chicago Business, and then a uh, more investigation by um, some folks on social media, which is posted showing that uh, she has the illegal exemptions um, and uh, is cheating the property tax system as a result. And so we cannot go back to having this office be subject to this favoritism, to self dealing, to those ethical conflicts. We've come too far. We cannot go back to that. Um, she, so, my understanding is she doesn't want to debate. Um, she skipped. I, out, I think on well, last count five debates. Now we did, we did, uh, we were on together on WTTW,
1: um,
2: and uh, I think you know people have people have posted the reviews on. She couldn't describe uh, some basic aspects of formulas and couldn't and, and really uh, had very uh, deceptive and troubling answers about the ethical conflict. She answered the question from parachutes and wttw in a very troubling disturbing deceptive way about lobbying saying that her husband doesn't lobby the assessor's office you know that's not the point it's taking money from lo- taking money from real estate developers into your personal bank account no matter what label uh, it trades by that is the problem and she didn't see that she didn't see that issue there so that's what's disturbing
0: and I was incorrect when I said that the regulars, uh, or whatever they're called, would have been moving over to the Board of Review. Uh, I was incorrect. It, there was Terry Steele is your opponent. Uh, the Board of Review, there's a Samantha Steele, which uh, a number of people are, are fond of. Now, let me just take a couple of quick questions. and I got to fire them at you. Uh, what about tips, backyard tax? <laughs> Where's our mayor on that? Are they good? Are they bad? Uh, what do you think?
2: Well, what what? So let's let's talk about TIFs. A TIF is a tax increment financing district, and it basically hives off an area, um, it, and it can be in the city of Chicago, but it also can happen in the suburbs. And actually, they're much more harmful in the suburbs, where any growth in assessed value does not. reduce reduce rates like it should in every other community. Normally, when assessed value grows, it helps to reduce rates for everyone who lives in the community, it grows the tax base, people benefit from growth and assessed value. When you have a TIF, any growth in assessed value for a period of a couple decades stays within the TIF and it, and it basically has the effect of raising rates on everyone else and the magical belief that you have to believe is that somehow cordoning off this money is going to be better for the public in the long run than having the lower rates that they should pay higher rates for the magic pixie dust that's uh, that's waved across this tiff 20 years later and generally it does not pay off for people because generally it's subsidies that are given back to big insider businesses, often enormous corporations like Amazon or Home Depot um, that come at the expense of small businesses that are often in the same kind of business. Um, you know, one of the examples I give is, you know, I used to be a Northsider and um, I mean, I'm not any amazing handyman, but I would occasionally tinker around the house and I buy stuff at the Crafty Beaver, which is like a good family-owned home improvement store On the north side, but then there was a TIF that opened up that helped to subsidize opening a Home Depot. And if you own the Crafty Beaver, you you've you have a right to have a beef about that, to say that here I am, an authentic, homegrown Chicago business, you know, fighting it out, doing the good fight, being part of the community. And then you're gonna fund this enormous, you know, publicly traded multinational company and give them a subsidy. That's wrong. Um, and so so that's, that's generally why I do not like TIFs. Um, I don't speak out on particular TIFs because uh, uh, overextending the bounds of my office, but generally TIFs are not a good deal for the public.
0: Um, you know, we're going to run out of time, but I'm going to fire uh, one more question at you. Um, do, do, are churches assessed and universities assessed like Loyola, Northwestern, Columbia College, Roosevelt? Uh, these, are, these,
2: are consider, these are considered non-profits that are exempt from property taxes. Um, okay. And that's that's under the state property tax code.
0: If, right.
2: they, if they rent out space for for profit activity, then it can be subject to property taxes.
0: Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you're educating me. Uh, one more thing I want to bring up is your ads. I like uh-huh. how people are throwing darts at you. You're eating hot dogs. But uh-huh. then you put ketchup on the hot dog.
2: Uh, I was
0: so thrilled. I was so thrilled because I'm a ketchup on the hot dog No, No,
2: no! you got this wrong, Michael. (laughs) I
0: had it wrong. I read it wrong.
2: So everyone go back and look at the ad. Ketchup on the hot dog equals bad stuff in the assessor's office equals what It's like an example of what was being done wrong. So now, Michael, I understand you might like ketchup on your hot dog, but (laughs) for all the viewers out there, because the the hot dog purist demographic is super important to me, and to Chicago. I just want people to know ketchup equates to bad. Go, go! You can look at the ad
0: again. Uh, well, that's I hope you're not getting donations from, the, from the video or <laughs> donations from big ketchup companies. Okay, well, you did great. You know, I really uh, you you helped me understand some of these issues. I hope some of our listeners get it. Uh, It's real important that people vote for every position and to find out what's going on. And remember, you can vote on uh, June 28th, and you can vote by mail or even in person before that. Well, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having coming on live from the Hard Land.
2: Well, happy to be here, Michael. And we, you know, we like those ads because the public put us here. The public's the one that made the change happen, and we wanted to have an adult conversation that people could understand in 30 seconds to give them information about what we're about, and and they understand that when you get darts from these big building owners, you probably got an assessor that's doing right by average people and small business, um, and that you know I take the I take the hit so you don't have to.
0: And just to be fair, if your opponent wants to come on, get a hold of me.
2: All right.
0: (laughs) Thank (laughs) you, brother. You're listening to the Live from the Heartland Show, or you may be watching it. Um, We would take a a little short musical break, but I think we're just going to go on out. You've been listening to Live from the Heartland Show. Uh, We'll be back next week, and we're going to have some uh, people who are involved with the Rogers Park Historical Society trying to change Passion Park into Pollard Park. Uh, the Pollards were the first African-American family in Rogers Park. They were a very notable crew, and there's a number of uh, people doing good work trying to uh, bring some uh, recognition and notoriety to that family. Um, you can get us on WLUW 88.7 on air or streamed on Saturdays, Tuesdays, and Fridays from 9 to 10 a.m. We're on CAN TV. We're on YouTube.com slash videos. Uh, we encourage everyone to do good in the world the world needs all the good that you do and thanks so much to all the people who make this show possible Emilio Davis Lynn Orman Weiss Imani Warren Luis Mahia Arens, Katie Hogan and Tom Clark we'll be back next work next week all power to the people